Let me get you to take a look in the mirror. What is it that you didn't do last year that you absolutely have to do in 2018? Is it work out more, lose some weight, make more money, be a better person? All these things are admirable, but the most important thing that you can do to improve your health, well-being, and energy is to stop snoring. Get a Zipa. If you snore, you need to stop. Snoring is not sleeping. Every time you snore, both you and those next to you do not get quality sleep. How sleep deprivation impacts your life is immeasurable. What is proven is that Zipa is guaranteed to stop snoring, and what better way to start your year? Get a Zipa. Z-Y-P-P-A-H.com. Make this new year a new you. Do not procrastinate. Go to zipa.com. That's Z-Y-P-P-A-H.com. Snoring is rude, disrespectful, and embarrassing, especially if you're dating. Can you imagine sleeping over with somebody and you start snoring? Relationships are in constant strain because snoring keeps people from staying in the same bed all night long. So this is an opportunity. Get a Zipa. Once again, go to ZYPPAH.com. Make this new year a new you. Do not procrastinate. Go to Zipa.com. That's ZYPPAH.com. When you go from port to rich really quickly, it's really fun. And you feel like this innocent tourist in a world that you don't belong in. Um, I was grateful for everything. I was jumping up and down on hotel beds and, you know, like, like counting a million dollars in cash. And I bought a Bentley GT. You know, I was just being crazy. Welcome back to the Jim Rohn Podcast. I am pumped to bring you episode 24 with my guest, Molly Bloom. Molly has an amazing story. A former member of the U.S. ski team, she retired after suffering a catastrophic injury during Olympic qualifying. She then prepped for law school, but decided to take a year off before entering and instead moved to Los Angeles, and that was a decision that would change everything. She was cut off by her parents. She couch surfed. She worked a handful of jobs. She served drinks, she worked as an assistant, and she ran her boss's weekly poker game. But this was not just any poker game, and Molly was not just any other assistant. Pretty soon, her boss's game became Molly's game, and Molly's game became the poker game in Los Angeles and then New York. A game that made her millions until the FBI came knocking and it all came crashing down. Do I have your attention? Thought so. Pot up. My conversation with Molly Bloom comes right after this word from Lumber Liquidators. It's a brand new year and we all want to elevate our game to the next level and make 2018 the best year ever. Well, if you're a contractor, builder, or remodeler, listen up because elevating your game this year just got a whole lot easier thanks to my pals at Lumber Liquidators and their new LL Pro Plus program. LL Pro Plus is Lumber Liquidator's new pro services team that you can call for all your professional flooring needs. LL Pro Plus will help you absolutely crush it this year with professional pricing and dedicated support to get you what you need when you need it most so you can get all your projects finished on time. LL Pro Plus gives you the ultimate value and quality. And with LL Pro Plus, no job is too large and no job is too small. So put the flooring experts on your team today, visit your local Lumber Liquidator store or go to LumberLiquidators.com. That's LumberLiquidators.com. The only thing standing between me and an unbelievably great conversation with Molly Bloom is a probably very believable 
terrible batch of your voicemail messages. Listen, I keep bringing this thing back every single week, and every single week you keep disappointing me. So once and for all, let's step it up or lose it altogether. Somebody come in and make me want to keep this thing around. 949 345-0774. Once again, 949-385-0774. Dial it anytime you want. Leave a message about anything at all. In the meantime, let's find out what we've got this time. Just know this. For this segment, I generally expect the worst, and I am rarely disappointed. You have seven new messages. First new message. Hi, Jim Rome. This is Marie from Lynchburg, Tennessee calling you back. I just wanted to say that your show reminds me of when I used to hang out with Abraham Lincoln. He was a great gentleman, and he really knew his sports. And His friend George Washington and I, we went to great school together. Message deleted. Next message. I heard there was a quarterback named Nick Foles. He is a backup, but you don't really care for the Eagles, do you? He's in the Super Bowl. He threw one, he threw two. Hey, look at that. Caught a touchdown, too. Message deleted. Next message. Philadelphia. 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 Message deleted. Next message. What is the difference between a snowman and a snowwoman? Snowballs! Message deleted. Next message. Hello, Jim. Matt Broderick here. Always been a huge fan. And I just wanted to call. I was listening the other day. I want to confirm that was my wife's crap all over the Philadelphia streets. Thank you. Message deleted. Next message. Yo, Rome. This is Alex in Medford. Just listen to your pod with uh, Thomas Jones. Epic pod, man. Great job. Keep up the good work. Later. Message saved. Next message. Oh, yeah. Freak out. Freak out. Macho man Randy Savage on the Jim Rome podcast again. Oh, yeah. Dig it. How you been, Jim? Yeah. Message deleted. Next message. Yo, Romy. It's Luke and Fort Collins here. I have no doubt that you have a wonderful Valentine's Day planned uh, with Janet and all that. But I uh, just want to give a shout out to the single clones like myself. Hang in there. If Jeff in freaking San Antonio could reproduce, then there's literally hope for literally anybody. Message deleted. Next message. Romy Rome. Matt in Vancouver, man. I just called to wish you and my guy Marty a very happy Valentine's Day. Uh, I've sent you guys both a couple Team Canada tracksuits in the mail. They are matching. Peace. Message deleted. You have no more messages. Wow. Garbage. First of all, take Marie's name out your mouth. She did not hang out with Honest Abe or George Washington. You take a run at Marie, you're taking a run at me. And damn, how about the lyrics on that soulful rendition of Hallelujah by that Eagles fan? That must have taken hours to come up with. Philadelphia, 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 Philadelphia. Horrible. Just as I'm pretty sure that was not Macho Man Randy Savage, and I'm damn sure that wasn't Matt Broderick either. Hey, Luke, you might be onto something now with that Valentine's Day theory. 
The jungle karma did work out pretty well for Jeff in San Antonio. It's tattooed on John Segman's back. It's worked for others. And you know damn well it applies to the voicemail as well. Valentine's Day, it's on its way, clones. Get ready for it. In fact, why not take a moment to talk to my friends at Stamps.com? They can help you with it. It goes without saying that the U.S. Postal Service is an important tool for any business reaching every household every single day. Now, Stamps.com is the easiest way to access all the amazing services of the post office. Stamps.com never closes. You can print postage for letters or packages at your convenience 24-7. You can print postage for any mail class right from your own computer. With the exact amount of postage every single time, so you never underpay or overpay. And Stamps.com saves you time and money, which you can use to grow your business. I love Stamps.com, and the reason I use Stamps.com is because it is convenient, it is easy, it is reliable, it is so efficient, it saves me so much time. I love this product. And right now, you too can enjoy the Stamps.com service with a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus postage and a digital scale. Go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in Rome. That's Stamps.com, but you have to enter Rome to get this special deal. Once again, that's stamps.com, code name Rome. I love this product. I know you will too. You know, the very reason that I started doing this podcast was so I could have conversations just like the one I had with Molly Bloom. This is something that you simply would never hear on my radio program because it's impossible to tell her story in 10 minutes or less. This is a wide-ranging conversation. We talked about her upbringing in Colorado in a family of truly exceptional people who moved to Los Angeles and trying to make ends meet and her crazy ride in one of the most insane stories you will ever hear. Molly has been to hell and back and tells an absolutely incredible story. Um, it was one of those things that was really hard when you're in it and um, sometimes painful and but you're so grateful for it in you know when you get some perspective um, my brothers you know their sort of uh, greatness presented at a really young age both of them Jeremy was this prodigy athlete Jordan was like playing chess at three you know <laughs> <laughs> wow and I'm like I like to read books, I guess, and ski, you know, <laughs> like sure. I didn't really know what my thing was. Um, and, and so it, I remember feeling pretty, in, pretty invisible um, growing up, but it raised the bar for me. You know, it raised the bar of, of what to reach for and what success looked like. So I guess I'm grateful for that for sure. You know, I would imagine also you're growing up and you see them doing what they're doing and you're probably thinking to yourself, what's my thing? What's my thing? So you're skiing and you're doing extremely well, but then you suffer a catastrophic injury. So mm -hmm. you decide to go to law school, but not before taking a year off and decide <laughs> to come here to Los Angeles, in your words, to get warm, have a little bit of fun. So who did you go to work for and then what happened next? Okay, so my parents cut me off, understandably, when I just took this undefined hiatus from life and um, I had to get, a, you know, a couple different jobs because LA is expensive. And one of them was working for this real estate developer who also um, was acquiring nightclubs around town. And he asked, he said, as part of your daily duties, which kind of ranged from 
executive assistant stuff to um, house cleaning, like kind of whatever I was called upon to do. He said, I also need your help running this poker game. And I didn't really even knew, know what that looked like other than what you've seen on sitcom television shows and kind of movie scenes. And I just said yes and, and didn't really know what I was, what I was, what I was in for. Mike, did you know anything about the game of poker itself? I didn't know one thing. I remember the night before the game Googling what kind of music do poker players like to listen to and what do they eat and, you know, like they're this strange species of people. I didn't know anything about the game or kind of the culture. So you walk into this room. What was the room like the first time you walked in this game and who and what did you see? Yeah, so I walked into this room and... I, I was just shocked because I was expecting kind of a, you know, a casual game. And, and, and I knew that, that my boss had famous friends and I, and I knew that there was a, like some conversation that they may show up, but it's shocking to walk into the room and see some of the richest, some of the most powerful, some of the most famous people alive today. I mean, it was shocking for me. I was from Loveland, Colorado. I grew up across the street from a cornfield. This is not how I rolled. And, uh, <laughs> So I walk into this room and there's all these larger than life people and they're so obsessed with this game and what's happening with this game. And so I just had a light bulb moment where two things became really clear to me. One, this was an incredible way to build a network. And, you know, I'd stumble, it was kind of like falling down a rabbit hole into this well-established power network. And, and then also there was, some pretty incredible access to information because these guys were speaking freely about things they were investing in, you know, the corporate world, politics, um, tech. And so um, I was really compelled um, right away. And then at the end of the night, you know, people just started handing me hundreds and I made $3,000 that first night, which was more money than I was making working for a month. Molly, your, your head must have been absolutely spinning. I mean, once again, yeah, you're, you're, you're in your early 20s. You're from this small town in Colorado. You're suddenly mm-hmm. in a room with the richest, most famous people in the world. You're walking away with a few thousand bucks. <laughs> I mean, what was going through your mind as you're driving home that night? Well, first of all, I was, I was sure that someone had followed me out of the club because I'd never seen that much cash. And I was like, someone's going to rob me. Right. And when I got home, I, I just couldn't sleep. My head was spinning, and I was like, wow, I don't know what this is. I don't know where this goes, but I know that this is something. I know that my life has just taken one of those sharp rights, you know? And and I just knew that I wanted to stay in that room, that I wanted to be able to get in front of these people, that I wanted to get to know this world. And um, so I just started teaching myself poker and the terms that I heard and um, trying to learn as much as I could um, uh, about this game and about the culture of it and, and the terminology that I was hearing because I didn't want to seem like I didn't know what I was doing. I wanted to stay there. You know, I think the, you're touching on this when you say this, but you said something really interesting before. You said, while these guys were playing poker, I was playing the room. What did you mean by <laughs> that? It means that they were setting the cards and the odds and the stats and, and to some degree each other, but I was trying to understand what was happening here from, uh, from a human behavior perspective. Um, why were these guys who were so rich, so powerful, had so much access, why did they want to show up here in this dingy basement with 
you know, a couple stacks of cards and chips. Like what was, what was going on here? And, and how, and, and ultimately when I realized that I wanted this game that I wanted to run my own games, how can I make it better? How can I make it more compelling? How can I make myself not replaceable? How can I add value? And, you know, a couple of things became really apparent. Um, these guys could buy anything they wanted and what they were in, in this for was experiences. So if the experience was, you know, blood sport and adrenaline and, and risking everything again and being able to win and lose again, whereas when you're in the position there in most of the world just hands you things. You just you just it's just constantly winning, you know. Um I just built on that. You know, I I was like, Oh, these guys want to feel like James Bond for tonight, you know, so why don't I move this game out of basement? Why don't I have beautiful women and Cuban cigars and high end everything, um, in penthouse suites and, and you know, build on that experience. And then also what became apparent over the years that wasn't necessarily apparent to me right away was there was also a much darker force at play here, which was, you know, that this for a lot of them, it was addiction. But in the beginning, I tried to figure out how to create, how to um, have these transformational experiences for them built around the game of poker. So I mean, you figured this out pretty quickly. You saw what was going on. You found a better way to do it. And then you started your own games. And your game started with a $10,000 buy-in. Now, that's crazy money for most of us. But yeah. it's walk-around money for people like that. Ultimately, how high did the stakes get in your games? Um, by the time I got to New York and I was running Wall Street games, the buy-in was 250000 hmm. And a lot of times, because of the different games they were playing, they were playing No Limit PLO and... and um, and because of uh, how much gambling was going on, those guys were burning through those initial buy-ins, you know, before the first round. I mean, it, the numbers were just insane. I, I've mentioned on some of these, on some of the press I've done, I saw someone lose a hundred million dollars in a night. One hundred million dollars in a night. I mean, yeah. we're talking about two fifty just to buy in. That became a regular game. Before we go back to the guy who lost one hundred, a hundred million in one night. Like, who played in those games? What types those of people? Games, those games were, um, the $250,000 games were mostly populated by Wall Street guys, investment bank guys, and then um, eventually um, some Russian criminals. Sure. <laughs> but I, didn't, I didn't know at the time they were criminals. Really educated, um, cultured, well-dressed, well-spoken guys, but that had their hands in other things, too. I'm going to go back to that in a minute. But Molly, somebody lost $100 million. How do you lose? How do you lose $100 million in a single night? Betting on what? Everything? Well, they were, well, you know, he was playing, um, simultaneously playing cards, playing backgammon, betting sports. Just, you know, and again, like I was bankrolling at the game at this time. So I was not bankrolling. I did not approve or vouch for the $100 million. I was vouching for what he was, he was playing in in the game, but he was also just, you know, it, it, he was betting on the, the game on the television. I mean, it was just like a free-for-all. Um, so, yeah, but see, that's the and thing. the game lasted for, you know, a couple of days. So, I mean, people can do damage, you know, real damage. Look real, at Vegas. I mean, yeah, exactly, right? But there's so many things going on here. So, like, you weren't bankrolling, obviously, the $100 million, but no, you I suddenly— couldn't. I wasn't that capitalized. Of, co of course not, but, but you were starting to guarantee— the money you were starting to bankroll mm -hmm. these games and we're talking about lots and lots of money yeah how stressful was that it was super stressful because you know in order to establish my legitimacy because keep in mind i was still like you know in my early in my early 30s late 20s um 
you know, people came to this game, they see like a woman, you know, who's young. And and so I always had to strive to establish legitimacy. Plus the fact I wasn't gambling with them. Almost every single game runner is sitting at the table with people. So they're winning and losing together. I'm just standing in the corner and in their perspective, I'm just winning, you know? So I constantly had to establish myself as super legitimate and give people reasons to, to play in my game. Um, and so the way that I did that was my credit was gold. You know, if it, people will tell you that used to play, if you had an MDB Inc. check, you could bring it to another game. It was as good as cash because I paid out my game right after the night. And what, you know, the stressful part was, so I'm out three, four million dollars every week that I have to collect. Hmm. So it took a lot of liquidity. Um, you know, and, and also I had to vet the players without traditional recourse for collections. So it was just intensely stressful. So how often were you getting stiffed? When I was on when I was on point, when I was on my game, when I was still making relatively good decisions, I really very rarely got stiffed. There's only a few times where I got stiffed and it was out of left field. Most of the time when you take a risk on a person, if you're doing your job correctly, you know you're taking a big risk. Um, and so towards the end, when I was just in so deep and everything was getting dangerous and there was drugs and, you know, and alcohol and just all the bad decisions and everything. Um, I started to get stiffed a lot. Like I had to write a couple high six figure checks and, and, but I have to tell you, it was mostly my fault. Yeah. And and I know, I know where you're going with that. And I want to get into that in a minute, but like, for instance, how did you collect on debts? I don't think you picked up a baseball bat and went to get your money, right? (laughs) No, No, I would never, you know, there's so many people that were always trying to buy my debt sheet, like street guys, you know, Mm. they're like, I can collect on this. And I'm like, you know, I'm just not in the business to hurt people. It's just kind of a poker game. Um, But the way that I collected was I ran a really good game that people knew that they could, you know, that there was great action at, that they were going to get paid, and they wanted to come back and play. Um, And if they were capitalized, you know, if I had done my background checks, if I had, you know, if, if I had done my work properly and my game was the best game in town, I knew that they were going to pay because they wanted to come back. You know, and the thing was, you you approached this as a business, and you were running a mm-hmm. thriving business, and you were very mm-hmm. disciplined, and you were making really good choices. But a couple of times mm-hmm. in this conversation, you've said, "When I stopped making those choices," which, <laughs> but Molly goes back to that: the guy who lost a hundred million bucks. You said the game went on for days. If I'm you yeah. and I've got that much money out there, I want to protect my investment. I want to be there. Yeah. I want to watch it. How is it that you're able to stay there? for hours and days at a time. How did you maintain that stamina? Not sober. Yeah, right? So what happened then? What happened then? Where did that go? Um, It just started, you know, cocaine didn't really work for me in terms of being sharp-minded and staying up. So it was more Adderall and alcohol um, and just uh, just a lot of it, not at therapeutic dosages. And, um, you know, that worked for a while, but then after you start depriving yourself of sleep and abusing pills and alcohol for an extended period of time, something shifts, you know, something changes and um, you think you're sharp and you think you're making okay decisions, but you're just really not. Sure. Now that guy who lost a hundred million bucks. Now, did he pay that money? He did. Wow. The next day. The next day. Yep. Wow. He he wired the money. That's a good thing. That's a very good thing. Let me ask you this. Who knows what, you know, like I only know that he settled they, they ver- I got a verbal that everyone settled, and I got paid. Um, but these guys oftentimes kept this 
enormous running tab with each other. So maybe he didn't, you know, pay the full hundred, but everyone, he was cleared. Sure. <laughs> For my purposes, he was cleared. Now you, you were killing it. I mean, things started to come off the rails, obviously, but you were running a thriving business. You were making a mm-hmm. lot of money. I mean, Molly, I hate the question, but for perspective, at its peak, yeah. how much money were you personally making? I mean, I think, um, well, not I think, on my 2009 tax returns, um, it was, I reported $4 million. And I think that 2009 was my biggest year. So you're living the life now, right? I mean, yeah. nice cars, <laughs> houses, vacations. Was it mm-hmm. Was it unbelievable? Was it what you thought it would be? No. Um, in the beginning, like when you first, when you go from poor to rich really quickly, mm. um, it's really fun. And you feel like this innocent tourist in a world that you don't belong in. And you're grateful for everything. Well, listen, I shouldn't say that. My experience, I felt like a tourist. Um, I was grateful for everything. I was jumping up and down on hotel beds and, you know, like, like counting a million dollars in cash. And I bought a Bentley GT. You know, I was just being crazy. Um, but it was fun, and I was still grateful for it, and it didn't, you know, it didn't own me. But then it normalizes, and you just become a person that has money. And what ended up happening with me is that I let money sort of compensate for that deficiency that I felt growing up. I started using money in that way, you know, to feel important, to feel significant, to feel like someone, to gain power over people for people to do what I want. And so using it in that way, because I hadn't really done the work that I probably should have done to find that center of gravity inside, I kind of went out into the world like, I don't want to be Jeremy Bloom's little, you know, or older sister anymore. Or I don't want to be compared. And, and I went out chasing that feeling of becoming someone. And so when money and power and celebrity and all that shit stuff came into play, um, it, it, it kind of, it kind of, came from such a dysfunctional place that it turned dysfunctional really quickly. God, yeah. And, and heady. But, um, yeah. Sorry? Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. But I think that something really awesome came from being broke, then having money, and then being broke again, which was this realization that it didn't really change the way I felt inside that much, you know? There was always that, like, fundamental sort of, like, unfulfillment. And it was only when I started approaching it from a different way that 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 I got happy and I got free and so it's kind of cool to know at 39 that money isn't what you think it is because it's hard to chase money and it's and it's empty and and it's great to know without a doubt that it's not that answer and and without question what you've done is you've redefined your notion of success which I will get I'll go right to in a second but the bottom line the way this whole thing changed it all changed when some you were getting stiffed, and as a hedge and a way to cover yourself, you started to take a percentage of the pot. Is that not right. when everything changed? Well, that's when it changed from the perspective of the law, for sure. Right. That's right. when I. That's when I became, um, or that's when I started breaking a federal law, and um, you know, it's the reason that I got in trouble. Now you mentioned the the Russian mob. They found their way into the game, and they seemed pretty legit. But then it got mm-hmm. really, really dangerous, and not surprisingly. They mm-hmm. saw you running a good business, and they wanted their piece. What happened then? Well, actually, the Russians just wanted to play, and then there, there was an Itali- there, there was a couple of Italians from organized crime that they wanted a piece. Which mm-hmm. was, it was two different, a okay. little confusing with, okay. with all the, <laughs> sure. the mafia stuff. But um, and they 
found their way to me and basically uh, said that first they offered a partnership. I said, no, thank you. And then they kept pushing and I um, kept denying them. And then they sent someone to my house um, who put a gun in my mouth and beat me up and, you know, emptied out my safe and said, we'll be in touch. And this time it's kind of not optional. Um, And then I just got really lucky because about 10 days later, um, they arrested 125 people in the biggest mob-related takedown in New York City history, and I just never heard from those guys again. So yeah, but like the scariest thing ever. It, before that happened, though, did you report that crime? I did not. How come? Um, they threatened my family, and you know, their whole deal. Hmm. You're doing drugs. It's stressful. You could have lost mm-hmm. your own life. You've got money in the bank. <laughs> Why not quit while you're ahead? Shut it down and move on to the next thing. Literally the $4 million question. <laughs> right, right. Um, I didn't know who I was going to be without that game. Mm. I I thought it was this accident that I had stumbled into. I didn't realize that I, I was just serving drinks to a poker game and that I built a business. I thought I just got really lucky and I just wouldn't be able to recreate it. And I, even though I was really sort of so empty inside, I felt like I was finally someone and that counted for a lot, um, and I just didn't know how to get out of it. And then the FBI gets involved, Molly. 17, yeah. 17 FBI agents come in yeah. with semi-automatic weapons, and they raid you. Mm-hmm. What in the world's going through your mind when you see 17 guys with machine guns knocking down your door? Um, it's so hard to explain what you feel like in that moment. Um <clears throat> It sort of feels like a movie. It feels like there's no way this could be really happening to you. It's hard to take it seriously because it's so crazy. But at the same time, this whole new level of hell that you've never even come close to being faced with, which is you are so aware that you could really lose your freedom. And that's just a whole different ballgame. Did seem... Look, you, you've been accountable for all this and all the choices you've made, but... Mm-hmm. 17 machine guns? Did that seem a little <laughs> excessive to you? Felt like a little much. But, um, again, I think a huge part of, of moving past, you know, what happens, like, when your life falls, what, like, moving past things and, and being okay is to just own it, to own what you've done, to own your part in it. And so at that point, at that night, that night that I decided to take a rake, you know, that's that's the... That's the playing field I put myself in. You know, it's one thing before I ask you about the movie and how that got made. Yeah. They did. They Now, they wanted to know about your business, but of course, mm-hmm. some of your clients were into some other illicit activity, and the feds want to know about those things, too. Did you give them what they wanted with regards to others involved? No. I gave them, I told them they can, I would t- I'll tell you anything you want to know about me. I'll plead guilty. I'll accept the punishment, whatever, you know, whatever it is, but that's it. You could have helped yourself if you did do that. So why yeah. not? Why not? How come? Um, I just think it's along the same lines of I made these choices. I profited from these choices. Um, I need to answer for the consequences. And I also looked at it in, in sort of like a pragmatic way, which was, okay, if I have to do some jail time, I'll live through that, and that will end. I, You know, if I lose this money, that. I'll, I'll figure out how to make more money, and and that, that that will end. But if I turn around and 
throw all these people under the bus to save myself, that just felt like a life sentence. It felt like I could never like myself again. Mm. The movie is so amazing and amazing, amazing. So, but, but when you went around town initially pitching this concept (laughs) as a movie, what was the reaction? Nobody wanted to talk to me. Mm. Explain that. (laughs) I mean, okay. It was like a combination of fascination and, and, um, but don't, but don't use my name. Like everyone wanted to know the story and they were super fascinated. It was fascination and fear. Right. Um, I knew that there was, I knew that there was a story by the way, by people like looking in people's eyes and as I'm telling the story, but most people were not brave enough to take on what they thought were, were, you know, some really formidable, powerful people who didn't want the story told, but Aaron was fearless. Now, well, okay. Aaron Sorkin was fearless and he got Mm -hmm. it and he understood it. However, what Mm -hmm. was it like for you to try to get a meeting with him? (laughs) So, you know, it's something that's, something that's also been awesome is I was in survival mode. I was broke. I was a felon. I owed, you know, my mom put her house up uh, and there's a little bit of liberation in a broken heart and a broken life. Like you, you don't care. You're, you don't have any ego anymore, you know? So it was awesome. And I've always had ego and I've always cared what people thought, but I didn't care. And I just took, and I, I looked at Hollywood and I was like, if I were to run numbers on people, who, who's the most successful screenwriter, you know, and who do I love? Whose work do I love? And it was Sorkin. And I really thought that he would be incredible. And so I wanted to start there. I wanted to see if he would like it. And I just went around to anybody that I could get a meeting with. And I was like, can you please introduce me to Sorkin? And most people laughed at me, you know, they laughed and I didn't care. I was just like, so is that a no? <laughs> no. <laughs> this is how you tell me no? Okay. And then um, this entertainment attorney, Ken Hart said, Hey, he's a good personal friend. I'll ask him for a favor. And I was like, great, perfect. And Aaron, you know, did him a favor. He's like, why am I meeting with the poker princess? Um, but then he said after, you know, before he even left the meeting, he knew he wanted to write it. So I got lucky. Obviously, exactly. You got in front of the guy you had to get in front of. But but how big of a risk was it? Look, the guy's a monster. He's huge in the industry. But yeah. how big of a risk was it for him to take on the project? Was it a risk? Well, I think, okay, so I think the way that Aaron operates, like he's such a true, pure artist. And when he gets inspired, I don't think he thinks in terms of risk anymore. I think, he, I think if he sees it, he can't unsee it. But, but I'm looking at it from the outside, and I know that in Hollywood, there's two things that there's a, that are, there's a huge scarcity of it, and that's content and great scripts, you know? And I think Aaron can afford to piss some people off and still work because he's that good. But on top of that, Aaron has so much integrity and he actually cares about doing the right thing. His first comment to me was, I'm not going to dish. I'm not throwing anyone under the bus. And I was like, good, great. We're on the same page. Exactly. That's what we've been saying all along. And, yeah. <laughs> and by the way, that with that in mind, I'm, I'm not looking to get you to throw anybody under the bus, but if we're talking about pissing <laughs> people off, Molly, Toby McGuire comes off like a real asshole in this movie. <laughs> I mean, he offered you a $1,000 tip, but what did he want in return for that $1,000 tip? It was a weird, it was this weird standoff. And just to give you a little background and context on it, he, you know, I started, this was early days in LA and I had gone from this girl that was bringing drinks to everyone to running the games. And um, there were some people that were threatened by that power for sure. And one night, and it was kind of building this, this like, 
you know, I could see like the disenchantment with, with this progression. And um, one night he said, here, I'm going to give you your thousand dollar chip, but I want you to bark like a seal. And I'm like, shut up. You know, I'm not doing that. <laughs> but it was like a 25 minute standoff. And the game had like basically stopped and everyone was watching and he wouldn't back down. He's like, what are you too rich now? All this stuff. And I'm like, no, I'm just not going to do that. You're the actor. You bark like a seal. <laughs> right. <laughs> so but the, the reason that I wrote that story in the book is because I think it's important for us to know that even if it's a superhero, right? Cause he was like Spider-Man at the time that wants you to do something that you don't want to do to lose your dignity or to whatever, like, just don't do it. You know? Did you? No. So what happened after that? Did he he and his guys continue to play in your games? So he basically, you know, it was a little. It, it went on for a little bit, but he was he he eventually took the game away from me. Hmm. But then I went to New York and built a bigger game. There you go. Like I said, <laughs> a, a, asshole. So let me ask you, you go through a journey like that, and we talked about this uh-huh. briefly, your definition yeah. of success definitely is going to change. So maybe how, no did you, how did you define success then, and how would you define it right now? Um, I, I defined success back then. Like I made money and power my God um, because I just thought that that's what would pull me out of feeling powerless, feeling insignificant, feeling inconsequential, you know? And um. So I guess um, I defined success as um, money, power, and um, making goals and achieving them. My third, my third factor has not changed, but the first two have. Um, and I realize now that if you want to stay miserable, just make life all about you all the time. and Think about yourself. Stay in yourself. You know. Mm. So for me, success has to be about something bigger than myself. You know, it has to be about, it has to be attached to purpose and to meaning. And it has to be something that you can share and give away and pull out, like pull other people up. I'm not knocking money and power at all, but there are such, there's such a, I, I come at it from such a different place. Like I have to have many other things in place. I have to be a good daughter, a good sister, a good friend. I have to have some purpose that I'm pursuing that's bigger than myself. Um, and I've got to believe in it, you know, and I, and I've got to look at it from all angles and not, and, and then if money and power comes great, but it didn't make me happy ever. Not a day in my life. Well, maybe like one day, but <laughs> not very long. So it seems to me mm-hmm. something like this either is going to rip a family apart or it's right. going to bring a family closer together. What right. did it do to the blooms? It catalyzed a ton of healing. It, we got real. We had those conversations. Um, I, you know, eventually, like, I had to own my part in it. My dad was really mad at me when I got federally indicted, you know? And I was like, I just need my daily now. But, like, I realized that I had to be okay with him being mad at me. That's not, you know? He had warned me so many times over the years about how reckless I was being. Um, and so I'm really so grateful and so happy to answer your question, which is it's brought us so close. I talked to my dad five times a day. I talked to my mom five times a day. I moved back to Colorado. I, you know, Jeremy and I are best friends. My other brother, I get to see all the time. He's my best friend too. And I don't know how I went those years without my family. Cause they're amazing. Mm, they are. What a great story yeah. too. 
Everybody wants to know the the movie is amazing. The way you've put your life back together is amazing. But everybody always asks after all of that, now? what are you yeah. doing now? What is the next thing? <laughs> so Molly, what are you doing now? Um. Okay. So here's what I'm, I'm going to go on a speaking tour. Good. Um. I love. You know. I I've loved during this time. You know, since the movies come out, how many people I've been able to speak to about what do you do when your life falls apart? You know, how do you put that back together? Um, and so I love being able to share wisdom about that. Um, I'm writing another book kind of, I can say, I can say curse words on, on this, right? Hell yes. Okay. It's, um, I'm basically writing another book like about how to unfuck your life. <laughs> <laughs> love it. Love it. And, um, I'm looking at these, um, co-working social networking clubs for women because I realized that I was able to provide these transformational experiences for men, it was just in a way that I didn't, that, that ultimately became not important, but to like help connect entrepreneurial women and, and, um, you know, lift them up would be awesome. So I'm looking at that and, you know, just keeping my options open too, keeping my eyes and ears open and seeing what, what's, you know, what opportunities are coming down the pipe. Because they are now. They weren't for a really long time. You bet. I think that all sounds so interesting. Molly, I, I can't lie Thanks. to you. I absolutely love the notion of unfucking your life. That is great. <laughs> what a great line that is. Is there going to be a is there going to be a movie about how to unfuck your life, or is that just going to stand alone as a book? I don't think so. I don't. I think. I think my days with people like to write movies about me are over. Like I like hang out with my grandma and I go skiing. It's like not interesting anymore. But but I think everyone, you know, I think everyone fucks their their life gets fucked at one point. Like whether it's a divorce or you get sick or you lose your job or you get arrested by the feds, whatever it is. And I think um, because I've created such a giant mess and found my way out of it, I have some solution around that. One hundred fucking percent. <laughs> Molly Bloom. Molly, this was so great. I was so, so looking forward to this. And it was even so I much better you. than I expected. Thank okay, you so good. much for taking the time, Molly. It was so great yeah, to talk awesome. to you. You're such a good interviewer. 24 up, 24 down. And damn, I got to say, this one really resonated with me. One of the episodes that I could not wait to get posted. You got to love that story. And most of all, you have to love the way Molly just told it. So do me a favor. When you hit me up with your thoughts, be sure to tag Molly in those tweets as well. Her handle is at I'm Molly Bloom. That's at I am Molly Bloom. Appreciate that very much. And so will she. Between now and the next podcast episode, you can hear my daily radio program every day from noon until 3 Eastern on CBS Sports Radio. And you can watch it simulcasting live on CBS Sports Network. Tons of ways to stay connected. So find the simulcast, get subscribed to our podcast, and tell your friends about both. I said it on the gram, and I'll say it again right here. Thank you so much for your unwavering support, clones. It does not go unnoticed or unappreciated. Catch you back right here on the 20th for episode 25. Thanks again for listening. Until then, I'll see you. I'm out.